0: Well, this morning, I have the great privilege of opening the Word of God with you, especially as we close out this year, uh, this year of 2019, and I do trust that as we look back on this year, we can look with 2020 vision, huh? <laughs> just, just kidding. Um, uh, and P- Pastor Michael will return to be with us uh, as he's with his family on vacation uh, this week. So if you can turn in your Bibles with me to John 3.16 to 21, John 3.16 to 21. If you're using a Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1055. And the title for this morning's sermon is At the Crossroads of God's Love. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you expectantly. We come to you with anticipation and in faith. And in faith, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. I pray that your spirit would ignite our hearts with love for your son. May your spirit cause us to see that which we cannot see in our own strength. And may your spirit change us as we behold the living and ascended one in your word. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God is love? That God, the glorious, almighty, transcendent creator of heaven, And earth is a loving God. For many of us, the reality is that we struggle to believe that God loves us. Oh, we wouldn't actually verbalize those doubts, but deep within us, we don't really think that God loves us. Because if I were to ask you today, what is God's attitude towards you at this very moment? What is his opinion of you? How does he feel towards you? What is he thinking of you? Those kinds of questions make us a little bit nervous. They make us uneasy. Because... For many of us, we think that God is distant, that he's disappointed with our failures, he's angry with us because of our many sins. It's as if we think that God is sitting in the heavens behind closed doors with his arms crossed with a frown on his face, with thunderclouds on his brows. Saying to him self, why can't these people just get it together? I've given them so many chances. I've sent my son to save them, but they still keep on messing up. And we think that God's love for us is dependent on our religious performance. We think that God must love me because I'm doing so well. I've been consistent in my Bible reading. I go to church. I'm telling other people about Jesus. He must be so pleased. But then when we don't do well, when we fail to live up to God's standards, we think that God is frustrated with us. You see, many of us doubt whether God loves us. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, some would react completely differently. Their view of God's love is that of indulgent enthusiasm. Indulgent enthusiasm. They would say, yes and amen, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he love me? In fact, you should love me. I was listening to to Sports Radio the other day on my way into the office and a famous football player was on a a Heisman Trophy winner, a former Heisman Trophy winner, and he was saying, it's so important that we first love ourselves. In fact, I think that's the mantra of this day, of this era, of this age, that we must love ourselves. I was um, on a, a YouTube rabbit trail the other day, and, and you know how those can turn out. They can either, you know, grab, uh, take you in for a couple hours or you find something that infuriates you. And, anyways, I was on the YouTube rabbit trail. I found something that uh, got my blood boiling a little bit. It was a, a prosperity teacher, and he was essentially his message was, You are amazing. You just have to believe in it. And God is here to unlock your amazingness, to untap your hidden potential, right, to put you on display. And friends, that is so counter to what God is about. He is about his glory. And he does not share glory with another. And people like this say, God loves you just as you are. And of course, there's truth in there. But what they mean by that is, that God loves us even to the point of accepting or celebrating our sin. And churchgoers who affirm the LGBT lifestyle would hold to this view of God's love. But of course, this, this view of God is wrong because God's love is a sanctifying love. You see, God sees us as we really are. He loves us as we are, but he loves us so much that he will not leave us as we are. He loves us so much that he sent his son not only to forgive us, but to transform us. And I think that in response to this permissive, view of God, this view of God's love that is characterized by indulgent enthusiasm, conservative Christians can tend to the other extreme. We swing to the other side and we shy away from talking about the love of God because we fear the unbiblical view of God's love. But both of these ditches, that of doubt on one hand, and indulgent enthusiasm on the other, are deadly, and both are wrong. Because the God of the Bible is infinite in love, we must believe that with all of our hearts. But his love brings us to a crossroads in life. His love demands our allegiance his love demands our obedience. And we must choose rightly. So here's our, our main point for today, that which I, I want you to walk away with. I want you to think about these two sentences this week. We must believe that God is love. We must choose the God who. So believe that God is love, and choose the God who loved. Let's read our text. So John three sixteen to twenty one, and the Apostle John writes this: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And in verses 16 to 17, we see that we must believe that God is love. We must believe that God is love. Now, John 3.16 is perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. It's a verse that many of you, the majority of you, have memorized. It is a glorious verse. Every word of this verse is bursting and dripping with gospel truth. But is there not danger in familiarity? Right? Every prophet right, is not without honor except in his hometown. And perhaps the verses that we know the best are the verses that we value the least? I think Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 right, is another one of those verses. We memorize it, but do we pause to reflect and meditate on those verses? Hear what Charles Spurgeon had to say about John three sixteen. It is a good thing for us all to return at times to our starting place, where we first began with God. It is wise to come to him afresh as we came in that first day when, helpless, needy, heavy laden, we stood weeping at the cross and left our burden at the pierced feet. There we learned to look and live and love, and there would we repeat the lesson till we rehearse it perfectly in glory. So let us come to this verse afresh so that we might believe that God is love. Now I believe in, in John three sixteen to 21, the Apostle John is commenting on Jesus' words to Nicodemus in verses 14 to 15, where Jesus, as you remember, told Nicodemus that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and the Israelites had to look upon the serpent and be cured of their illness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that all who would behold him in faith would not perish but have eternal life. And the Apostle John, reflecting on Jesus' words in the previous two verses, gives us the reason for God sending his Son into the world to save us. Why did God send his Son? to save guilty, perishing sinners? The answer is that God is love. We must believe that. So let us consider verse 16. Let us first consider the one who loved. John says, For God so loved the world. Now here he is speaking of God the Father, because God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, the person of the Trinity that John is referring to in this word, God is God the Father. The Father loved the world. Now I believe that our view of God the Father is so frequently distorted and wrong. Sometimes we think that the father had to send his son into the world to save us because the son was the loving one and the father was the angry one. It's like the father was saying, all right, son, go save them because you know what, I, I just can't bring myself to love them. And we're convinced of Jesus' love for us, right? But when we think, what is the father's attitude towards me, we doubt But notice what John doesn't say in this verse. He doesn't say, the Son so loved the world that he came to this earth to save us from his angry Father. No. John said that God that is the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So as we consider the gospel, the good news that God saves, that Jesus died for sinners, we must always remember that the fountain of the gospel, the source of the good news, is the Father's love for sinners. Believe in the Father's love for you. Let us also consider the recipient or the object of God's love. John says, for God so loved the world. God set his favor, his affection, his blessing and care upon this world. Now by using this word world, John is not just speaking of the world in its physical features or of all the people in the world, the nations, the tribes, and, and all the different people groups. When John uses the word world, He is using that word to describe a a defiant, sinful world in rebellion against its maker. In 1 John 2.15, John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or in 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Jesus himself called this world, said that this world was under the power of the evil one, right? That the evil one is the ruler of this world. So here's what John is saying in verse 16. That God, God the Father, loved this sinful world in rebellion against him the Holy One, the perfectly, infinitely holy God loved a sinful world. Does that amaze you? It should. Now this is so hard for us to grasp because our love, the love that we receive and the love that we give is so often conditioned upon performance. Right we love those who love us we hate those who hate us but to love those who hate us those who spite us those who do not want anything to do with us no that's incomprehensible unfathomable so apart from our experience and that is why the love of god is so Amazing. D. A. Carson writes this. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. Louis Zamperini, you, many of you might be familiar with that name. There was a movie released about him just a couple years ago. He was, a, he was an Olympic athlete who later served uh, for the US in World War II. He actually grew up just south of us in Torrance, Torrance, California. He, comp- he competed in the Olympics, actually in, in Germany, just prior to the outbreak of World War II. He actually met Hitler, and Hitler told him, Wow, you're the one who finished the race really strongly. So he served in World War II, and his plane crashed in the Pacific Ocean. Right? He was captured by the Japanese and he became a prisoner of war until the very end of the war, and he endured unspeakable brutality, beatings and inhumane treatment at the hands of his captors. After the war, he boy, he sunk, in, sunk into really deep waters, right? and his wife dragged him to a Billy Graham crusade, and it was at that crusade where he accepted Christ. And he later had the opportunity in 1952 to return to Japan, to the Sugamo prison, where he would meet his prison guards. Let me read Louis' words to you describing that meeting. Then the colonel, the one who was in charge of the prison, said to the prisoners there, there are those of you who were Louis' guards and heads of his prison camps. He'd like you up here in this room on the right, so step out of your seats right now. And they did. I looked out and saw them coming down the aisle, and of course I recognized each one of them vividly. I didn't even think of my reaction. I jumped off the stage, ran down, and threw my arm around them. And they withdrew from me. They couldn't understand the forgiveness. We went in the room, and there, of course, I continued to press the issue of Christianity, you see. And all but one made a decision for Christ. One of those men was the interrogator, James Sasaki, who attended USC, back, or with, back, uh, USC with me. And he just turned to me and said, Louis, I, I can't see how you can come back and forgive us after what we've done to you. I said, well, Mr. Sasaki, the greatest story of forgiveness the world's ever known was the cross. When Christ was crucified, he said, Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. And I said, It is only through the cross that I can come back here and say this, but I do forgive you. And he responded to the invitation to become a Christian. Now, how was Louis Zamperini able to love his enemies? it's because he received that very same love. He experienced love that he did not deserve. And it was only because the love of God was shed abroad in his heart that he could love those who struck him. Listen, everyone in this you are a sinner, wicked and defiled, and so am I. But God loves sinners. And this is how he loved sinners, by giving that which was the most precious to let us consider the demonstration of God's love in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved us by giving his only son to die for us. His beloved son, his precious son, his only son. God gave to be crushed for our sins, to pay the penalty for our transgressions, to take the wrath that you and I deserved. Now, the love of a father for his children is fierce. When my dear wife and I had children, a love came over me that I've never felt before. I would do anything. I will do anything to safeguard them but the mystery of God's love for us is this is that he sent his only beloved son to suffer and die for his enemies the father would pour out his righteous anger against our sins on his precious son Why? Because he loved us. Because he wanted to bring us into his embrace. So let us consider then the outcome of God's love. John says that God sent his son so that whoever believes in him that is the son would not perish but have eternal life. God gave his son so that we, sinful men and women, would not perish in an eternal hell apart from the love of God. Instead, we receive eternal life. And we sang this truth in one of the songs. We read of this truth in John 17, 3. That eternal life is what? Is knowing the father and the son. I think so so frequently we we think of eternal life as just living forever. And if we were to kind of paraphrase John 3, 16, we think this. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that we wouldn't die in hell and so that we would live forever, right? That's what eternal life is. But in John 17, 3, Jesus says this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and your son. Why did God deliver us from hell? Just so that we would live forever? No. He delivered us from hell so that he might bring us into relationship with him. Right? It's not like he was the prison guard having or taking pity on his prisoners, unlocking the gate, opening the door, and saying, all right, out. I've shown pity on you Leave. No. He unlocks the gate, opens the door, and then says to us, Come. Then he draws us into his embrace. (laughs) And in verse 17, it's as if John has to emphasize that God would actually do this, not for his friends, but for a world in rebellion. Against him, verse seventeen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, in verse seventeen, John refers to the word "world." He refers to the world three times, and it says as if he has to convince us, guys. God sent His Son to save us, sinful men and women, the world to save those who did not deserve it he gave up that which was most precious to him to save us when you are tempted to doubt whether god loves you a sinner consider the greatest demonstration of his love for you the giving of his son to save you and if that doesn't convince you, then what can? And Paul says in Romans 8, right, he who gave his only son for you, what will he not also give for you, right? It's like from the greater to the lesser, God gave that which was most precious to him. He will graciously provide all that we need. So believe that God is Beloved, we have beheld the love of God, and it is marvelous. But it is not enough that we marvel at the love of God. No, for God's love brings us to a crossroads. The sending of the Son of God to this world drives us to a decision every one of us in this room is faced with a decision as a result of John 3, 16 to 17. I was reflecting on just the Christmas season this year as we drive around town and see all the lights, even driving uh, driving down Euclid and there's this really elaborate nativity set, right, that kind of walks through the, the birth of Christ. You hear the songs on the radio, right, The world, much of the world, celebrates Christmas. But what they do not realize is that Christmas brings them to a crossroads. They are faced with a choice, the most important choice in their lives as a result of the truths of Christmas. Which brings us to our second point. We must not only believe that God is love. We must choose the God who loved. In verses 18 to 21. Now, Verses 18 to 21 address those who would define God's love as total acceptance, even to the point of accepting or celebrating sin. Now God's love is not dependent on on our obedience, but God's love demands our obedience. Jesus himself told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So as much as we emphasize the love of God, we must emphasize that it brings us to a crossroads. And what is the choice before us? Well, the first choice we have is the choice of faith in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him that is the Son is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It is those who believe in the Son who put their faith in him who are delivered from judgment. Friends, it is not enough for you to celebrate Christmas. You must entrust yourself to the Christ of Christmas. It is not enough for you to say, Jesus saves sinners. You must say, Jesus, save me. Be my savior for I am a sinner. It is not enough for you to say, Jesus died for the sins of the world. You must say, Jesus, take my sins. Take my lying. Take my lust. Take my pride. Take my laziness. Take my wicked heart. Take it all. Take away my guilt by your cross. For I am guilty before. It is not enough for you to say, Jesus is Lord. You must say, Jesus is my Lord. Friends, this is saving faith. Not just intellectual knowledge, not just agreement, but total commitment of yourself to the Savior. And if you do not commit yourself to him, then judgment awaits you. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, John says in verse 18. If you choose to not believe in the Son, if you choose to reject the Son, then your condemnation is sure. Because you have heard that God sent his son into this world to sinners who put their faith in him. Yet you will not bow the knee to Jesus. Now if someone has heard about the son, if they have heard about what he has done, only to turn away, that person is in a perilous condition. For what more can they hear to convince them to turn to Christ. They've heard the message of the gospel, only to reject it. This is the madness of unbelief that someone would hear about Jesus, only to reject him. And if you reject the Son, then you reject the one who sent the Son. You reject the father of the son. And remember, the son is beloved to his father. And if you reject the son, then the wrath of the almighty God is upon you. That is the choice before you. Well, you have God as your father. Will you have God as your judge? And it all depends on what you will do with the Son. It is a great privilege, you young ones, to grow up in this church. The children, the junior high students, the high schoolers, the college students, those of you who attend this church what a marvelous privilege to hear the word of God preached. For you to grow up in the atmosphere of the gospel. But not only is it a privilege, it is a great danger. And the great danger is that the gospel is not good news to you. The gospel becomes boring news to you because you've heard it so many times that it doesn't move you you've memorized john three sixteen, but you're like yeah got that check i mean i'll tell other people about it but as far as as that changing me not so much your heart is more captivated by this world than by the savior You young ones, will you not believe in the son? Will you not give your life to him? Many of you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. I invite you today right now where you are to call on him to save you. What's keeping you? What's keeping you from from stepping over the line and giving your life to Christ? Is it this world? This world cannot compare to him. There are others of you, adults, perhaps if it's your first time here, perhaps you've been coming for a while and you have yet to call to Jesus. Today is the day. Today is the day where you must cry out to him and have him As your Savior and Lord. Your eternal destiny depends on what you will do with him. Do not put it off. For you do not know the day or the hour. When your maker will call you home. We must choose the God who loved. By receiving his son. Now unbelief. Unbelief, the choice before us in verse 18, if we choose unbelief, that is nothing short of insanity. Think about it. God has sent his son to rescue those in darkness from everlasting judgment and those who believe in the son come into a relationship of love with the father and the son. Why would anyone not believe in Christ, But we must understand that faith is not simply an intellectual decision. Faith is a moral decision between light and darkness. Remember this. Moral defection always precedes intellectual defection. If there's someone who claims Christ, you think, man, that person's on fire for Christ. Only to defect from the faith, only to say, I no longer believe in the truths of the gospel. Remember that it is not an intellectual defection, first and foremost. It is a moral defection. They will not give up their autonomy to serve Christ. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment of those who disbelieve the sun. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is why people do not believe in the sun. This explains the insanity of unbelief because Christ is the light of the world. And unbelievers love the darkness. God chose to love those in darkness by sending light to them. But now those in darkness must reject the darkness and come to the light. You must choose. This is the choice before you. You must choose to come to the light of the world and reject your darkness. Now I want you to notice something. Look at the love of God in verse 16 and the love of man in verse 19. In verse 16, John says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And in verse 19, how did the world respond? People loved the darkness. God loved this world and people loved the darkness. This is why judgment is coming. Because people love the darkness more than the light. And you notice that people don't just love darkness in general. They don't just love their sin in general. They love their specific deeds of darkness. Verse 19. They love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds, their works were evil. People would rather have materialism than the Messiah. They would rather have illegitimate sex than the Savior. People would rather be self-made than made anew by Christ. You see, unbelief is really just an expression of love. People love their individual sins more than the Son. In fact, not only do they love their sin more than the Son, they hate the Son. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things, what is that person's attitude towards the light? They hate the light. They do not come to the light lest his works, their works, should be exposed. This is what verse 20 tells us today. If we love our sin more than the sun, we hate the sun. Because Jesus is light. And if we refuse to come to the light, we do so because we hate the fact that the light would expose our sins, that the light would shine brightly onto the deepest crevices of our heart, and show us for who we really are. You see, God has given us, every one of us, a conscience. And when we do wrong, we know that we do wrong. And our conscience begins to to scream at us, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And people cannot continue to live in a state where their, their conscience is crying out that they are guilty and in need of forgiveness. What they do is they continue to silence and suppress their conscience. They rationalize their sin. They justify their wrongdoing. They say that their sin is righteousness. And in so doing, they quiet what God has given them, the gift that God has given them that might drive them to Christ. But I think that deep down inside, they still know that they are guilty. They hate the light. They hate the light because they do not want the light to expose them, to show what they already know that they have done wrong before a holy God. So they hide in darkness. And If you hate the light today, if you love your darkness and your sin more than the light, your judgment is assured. God's wrath is upon you. And if if this is you today, if you love the darkness and you do not want to come to the light, perhaps some of you are living a double life. You come here on Sundays, you present yourself in a happy mood. You know the line that you should walk. You know what publicly you shouldn't cross, like the lines you shouldn't cross. But in private, when no one is watching, You are cultivating a secret life of sin. Let me ask you this. What do you think will happen if you come to the light? Are you afraid that God will turn you away? That your judgment will be more severe? That God will consume you if you approach the light? Let me tell you what will happen. If you come to the light, God will give you grace. Your sins, no matter how severe, how wicked, will be forgiven. Your tears, no matter how bitter, will be wiped away. Your heart, no matter how wicked, cleansed and washed by the blood of Christ and the God who is love the God who sent his son to this world to save sinners will open his arms and embrace you and say welcome home my child light will not consume you God's light will forgive you and cleanse you because the light of God is a a gracious light. I was thinking on Exodus 3, right when Moses goes to the mountain and he encounters God at the burning bush. And Moses stops to consider. He's perplexed. There's fire, but the bush was not consumed. And I think the lesson there is that the, the holy creator of the heavens and the earth, he is holy. But his holiness, his holiness will not consume us because his holiness is a gracious holiness. And his holiness extends to sinners to save us. And if you come to the light, the light which you once thought was so dull, so boring, so rigid and, and lifeless, that light will bring life to your heart in a way that the darkness never could. I remember thinking in, maybe around junior high, and just lying down and thinking, man, if I commit my life to Christ, having grown up in a Christian home and in the church, if I commit my life to Christ, I'm gonna miss out on all the fun that I wanna have, right? My life is gonna be boring, right? I actually have to do what's right. and That's no fun. And that kind of thinking, right, that kind of belief in a lie led me down a wicked path. And for a season, my sin brought pleasure. But it was like a drug. I needed more and more and more because my sin could not satisfy. But when I met Christ, I found the one who could satisfy. And I wanted more of him, not because he did not satisfy, but because he did. So come to the light. Come to Christ. And you will find life in abundance. You see, we are so satisfied with with the rotten, decaying scraps that we eat while the Savior invites us to his table. Let us come to the table. Will you not come to the light? Will you not come to Jesus? Will you not choose the God who loved? And then you too will become a child of light and walk in the light, not by your own power, but by the power of God who works in you. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice that this person who walks in the light continually does what is true true. This is the habits of his life. Not to say that this person walks perfectly, always in righteousness. No. But it is the, the character of his life that he walks in the truth. His life is in accord, in alignment with gospel truth. And this child of the light is always coming to the light. He is not afraid. Because he wants to come to God to have God search him and test him, to shine a light in his heart, so that deep within him, in the parts of his heart that no one else sees, that there too might his heart reflect the character of God. This is our great desire, is it not? That God is the root of all that we do, that we reflect Him. And friends, we come to the light because we believe that we will receive grace when we come to the light. We received saving and transforming grace when we first came to Christ. And whenever we come to Christ, day by day, we continue to receive saving and transforming grace. God does not consume us when we come to Him. But He lovingly and graciously and gently transforms us. Our cry must be, God, search me and know me and see if there is any wicked way in me. Remove the cancer of my heart so that I might bring you glory, so that I might look like your son. And if we do, when we do, God delights to change us. We have just finished celebrating Christmas this week. The world has finished celebrating Christmas. What we must realize is that Christmas leaves us with an inescapable choice. Christmas leaves this world with an inescapable choice. For God has sent his son into the world to save the world. And his son is the light of the world. And we must choose to reject the darkness and come to the light. What will you choose today? I trust that you will come to the light. Let's pray. Father, we approach your throne. And we thank you that your throne is a throne of grace. That we can come to you and find grace and mercy in our time of need. And we can come to your throne of grace because your son intercedes for us. He is our great high priest. And Father, when we come to your throne, you delight to welcome us. You delight to change us. You delight to conform us to the image of your son. I pray you would do so. And I pray for those here who still walk in darkness that they would come to the light today. We pray all this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Beloved, may you go forth today and into the new year believing that God is is love, and choosing the God who loved. You're dismissed.